Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Canada EHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. And if you're a fan of Canadian History X, make sure you check out my other shows, From John to Justin and Canada, A Yearly Journey. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. It helps keep this show going. All right, on with the show. A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Before I begin, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that this episode you're about to hear was recorded on Treaty 6 land. And a quick warning, some language used to describe Indigenous people in this episode is archaic and can be offensive to some listeners, but we're using them because in reference to how these were perceived at the time. On June 25, 1969, Minister of Indian Affairs Jean Chrétien rose on the House of Commons to present the federal government's white paper, which he'd been working on since 1968 when he set out to amend the Indian Act. After hearing concerns regarding treaty rights, land title, and self-determination, Chrétien and Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau believed the best course of action was to eliminate treaties, the Indian Act, and assimilate all Indigenous peoples fully into the Canadian state. All reserve lands would be converted to private property owned by Indigenous nations and responsibility for services on the land would be transferred to provincial governments. And the backlash to the white paper from First Nations was immense. One young Indigenous man decided to put pen to paper. He wrote The Unjust Society, which was a stinging rebuttal against the white paper. It became an international bestseller and is credited with galvanizing the response against the white paper, leading to its eventual demise. I'm Craig Baird, this is Canadian History X, and this is the story of that book's author, Harold Cardinal. The beginning of this story starts in 1875, when the Liberal government of Prime Minister Alexander Mackenzie introduced the Indian Act, which consolidated the laws concerning Indigenous peoples which were originally enacted by the colonies of British North America before Confederation in 1867. The Act gave the federal government exclusive authority to govern quote-unquote Indians and lands reserved for Indians. 
The act had two goals. One, to codify rights promised to the indigenous people by King George III in the Royal Proclamation of 1763, which created a platform for making treaties and somewhat recognized indigenous sovereignty. And two, to enforce Euro-Canadian standards of civilization on indigenous peoples. The government hoped the act would be enforced in such a way that the indigenous people would feel compelled to renounce their indigenous status and enfranchise into Canadian civilization. Any indigenous person who renounced their status was able to vote, pay taxes, and live off reserve. Anyone who kept it had to live on reserve, they lost their voting rights, and they were subjected to oppressive rules, including needing a pass from an Indian agent just to leave the reserve. Indian agents were often white men who held immense power. They could restrict freedoms, rations, rights, and benefits based simply on what they considered to be, quote, good moral character. From 1876 to 1880, any indigenous person who graduated from university and became a minister, doctor, or lawyer lost their status. For indigenous women, if she married a non-indigenous man, she lost hers. And that continued into the 1980s. Over the course of the next 90 years, there were various changes to the act, and I'll now highlight a few of them and a quick note the information and material here may trigger unpleasant feelings or thoughts of past abuse. Please contact the 24-hour residential school crisis line at 1-866-925-4419 if you require emotional support. In 1884, the potlatch, an important cultural ceremony for Pacific Coast First Nations, was banned. In 1895, all Indigenous festivals, dances, or ceremonies were banned. This included the powwow and Sundance. In 1894 and 1920, amendments were made to the Act which forced Indigenous children to attend residential schools. The goal of these schools was to force assimilation into Canadian culture on generations of children. In 1914, Indigenous dancing off-reserve was outlawed, and in 1925, all Indigenous dancing was outlawed. In 1927, the Act made it illegal for any First Nation to solicit funds to pursue a land claim. Today, these actions are considered an act of cultural genocide. Following the Second World War, Canada began to look at the oppressive measures imposed by the Act and reforms were put forward in the early 1950s. On January 20, 1951, the Indian Act was amended to remove the ban on the potlatch and Sundance. It also allowed land claims to be made against the government. Women were also able to finally vote in banned elections. But even with this small bit of progress, the Act still prohibited any status Indigenous person from possessing alcohol or being intoxicated. The welfare of Indigenous children was also given to the provincial governments, which led to the 60s scoop when children were removed from their homes and were sent, often miles away, further decimating family units. And this was done in favour of offering resources and support for those families. However, some say progress was made. On March 31, 1960, Indigenous peoples were finally given the right to vote in federal elections regardless of their status. And that brings us up to 1968 and the White Paper. Now a quick note before we move on. The last residential school closed in 1996, and the 60s scoop gave way to the Millennium Scoop, 
which is used to describe the distressing rate at which indigenous children are represented in the child welfare system. The man who effectively took down the white paper was named Harold Cardinal. He was born on January 27, 1945 near High Prairie, Alberta, on the Sucker Creek Reserve to Frank Cardinal, a respected indigenous leader and former chief. Almost as soon as Harold could walk, he was on a political path. As a young man, he said his goal was a political life, and he accompanied his father to meetings of the Indian Association of Alberta, where he acted as an interpreter and gained first-hand knowledge. While attending St. Francis Xavier High School in Edmonton, he became the president of the Students' Union, and after graduating, he moved miles away from home to attend St. Patrick's College, now Carleton University, in Ottawa. There, he was appointed by the Canadian Union of Students as their Associate Secretary of Indian Affairs in 1966. That same year, he was elected president of the Canadian Indian Youth Council, which had been established in 1964 with the goal of fighting for the interests of Indigenous youth. During his time in university, he began to wear a beaded jacket over dress shirts, something he continued to do throughout his life. And his classmates noted that he always wore moccasins in class, and for his yearbook picture, he dressed in full Indigenous regalia. His pride in his culture helped Harold rise quickly in the political world, unafraid of ruffling feathers by saying what he felt. During a meeting of the Indian Eskimo Association in Calgary in 1967, Harold watched various presentations, mostly by white presenters, and then said, quote, When we want advice, we will ask for it, but we are tired of free advice when we don't need it. Unless the Indian people can become masters of our house, we shall never be on equal footing with our fellow citizens. We do not want to become brown white men." End quote. In July 1968, Harold was elected the president of the Indian Association of Alberta. The association was founded in 1939 with the purpose of advocating for the rights of indigenous people in Alberta. Harold was the youngest president in its history and went on to serve an unprecedented nine terms until 1977. As president, he initiated several programs and put forward policies for the welfare of indigenous people in the province. He was a natural leader, as seen by the rise in membership to the association. In his first four months as president, it rose from 150 people to over 10,000. Harold could not have come to that post president at a more important time because a year later, Jean Chrétien Pierre Trudeau introduced the white paper and he was about to become the face of opposition to it. Uh, we hope that this policy statement will help the Indian to become full citizen socially and economically of the Canadian society. And we hope that this statement will permit the Indian to develop their own culture and their own tradition because it's a very important element in their life. I think that uh, we have to offer to the Indian people of Canada to be partners with us in our society and be in the position to compete with the other members of our society. What is quite evident is that the paternalistic approach that we have had over the last hundred years had to be changed and this statement is designed to permit to establish a framework that will do that job. Angered by what he saw, and feeling like this was another forced assimilation into Canadian culture by the government, Harold let his pen do the talking. To prepare his response, he went to 41 different First Nation communities in Alberta to get their opinion. And once he saw the condemnation of the white paper was nearly universal, he got to work on his magnum opus. In 1968, he released The Unjust Society. 
The title was a play on the phrase by Pierre Trudeau when he put forward the landmark amendments to the criminal code. On the very first page, Harold cut into this phrase by writing, Now at a time when our fellow Canadians consider the promise of the just society, once more the Indians of Canada are betrayed by a program which offers nothing better than cultural genocide. He called the white paper a quote, white paper for white people created by the white elephant. He characterized the government proposal as a thinly disguised program of extermination through assimilation, stating that for the government, quote, the only good Indian is a non-Indian. Writing about the White Paper's recommendation to abandon the treaties, Harold wrote, When treaties were signed between Indian First Nations and representatives of the Crown, the Indian First Nations viewed themselves as sovereign nations entering into a formal agreement and relationship with another sovereign nation. He also contrasted the government's efforts to save various species at the time with its disregard for the indigenous peoples. He said, Sometimes it seems to Indians that Canada shows more interest in preserving its rare whooping cranes than its Indians, and Canada, the Indians note, does not ask its cranes to become Canada geese. This personal response by Harold to the white paper was an instant bestseller across Canada. And in 1969, he spoke to the media, and he didn't mince words. The policy paper is probably one of the most clever pieces of documentation that I've ever seen politically. It, it, it's aimed at the white people who are bigoted, who hate Indians. They'll be able to turn around and say, um, oh, those damn Indians will stop getting everything for nothing now. And it's aimed, I think, and here is where it, it's more dangerous, at the uh, small L white liberal Canadians. Because there's this phraseology of freedom and equality that gets thrown in and it's pretty difficult for a person to, especially a white person, to argue against this type of thing because this places him in a position of being a, a reverse racist type, type of thing. Although a bestseller, the book was not without blowback. Harold suddenly found himself on the national stage, sharing a table with Jean Chrétien in newspaper photos, and many in the media called Harold a militant for his rhetoric. Jack Richards, a columnist with the Vancouver Sun, was particularly harsh when he said, Harold Cardinal is no different than any other bigot, white, red, black, brown, or yellow. But some praised Harold's efforts. Gordon Aylborg of the Edmonton Journal wrote, this young president of Alberta's Indians is a credit to the great speakers of history. Release of the unjust society and the accompanying pressure caused the government to reverse its decision on implementing the white paper and eventually abandon it altogether in 1970. Meanwhile, Harold's book went on to inspire a generation of indigenous people to take pride in their culture. And Harold, well, he was just getting started. For nearly a century, there's been various attempts to form an overarching indigenous organization that spanned the country and advocated for the interests of First Nations. Regional indigenous organizations had existed, including the Grand Indian Council of Ontario and Quebec, established in 1870, and the Allied Tribes of BC, established in 1915. Then there were the attempts by Fred Loft, an indigenous First World War veteran who came home from the war and wanted to build something to advocate for the indigenous peoples. He had seen many indigenous soldiers in the war, who were constantly overlooked by their superiors for their bravery. 
and he established the League of Indians in 1919, which advocated for land rights and improved education for indigenous people. Loft continually fought against Indian affairs to keep his organization running. He was refused opportunities to speak to Parliament, and there was no funding from the government. And when he died in 1934, the League of Indians died soon after. In 1961, the National Indian Council was formed to represent Indigenous peoples in Canada, but this collapsed in 1967 due to disagreements between Status Indigenous, Non-Status Indigenous, and Métis. But following the collapse of the White Paper, a group of 11 prominent Indigenous leaders, including Harold Cardinal, formed a new organization, the National Indian Brotherhood. The first act of this new organization was to launch an alternative to the White Paper, and that response came from Harold. It was called Citizens Plus, and it was endorsed by 150 Indigenous leaders across Canada. On June 3, 1970, with the Indian Chiefs of Alberta, Cardinal presented it to Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau and his cabinet. The name for the paper came from the Hawthorne Report, which was a survey of the Indigenous peoples of Canada done in 1966. In that report, a line stated, Indians should be regarded as Citizens Plus. In addition to the normal rights and duties of citizenship, Indians possess certain additional rights as charter members of the Canadian communities. The paper's official name may have been Citizens Plus, but it soon became known as the Red Paper. The paper asked federal authorities to admit their past mistakes and recognize historic treaties. It called for the preservation of Indigenous cultures, land rights, status, and traditions. And Harold wrote that recognition of treaties had to be binding. The paper also recommended that education be directed by a First Nations Council. And when it came to the issue of land claims, Harold wrote that a commission needed to be established and created with full First Nations consultation. This commission would modernize treaties, review reserve boundaries, and prepare legislation. The Red Paper, coupled with the unjust society, forced the government to completely walk back its decision to abolish the Indian Act. Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau, while stating there were parts of the Red Paper that irritated him, admitted that some elements of his paper are not fleshed out properly, he said. We've learnt in the process that perhaps we were a bit too theoretical, we were a bit too abstract, we were not, as Mr. Cardinal suggests, perhaps pragmatic enough or understanding enough and that is fine. We are here to discuss this. Soon, the white paper was gone. And as for the red paper, it paved the way as a model for self-government by First Nations. Beginning in the 1980s, it contributed to incorporating Indigenous rights into legislation, including the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. But we're far from done with the Harold Cardinal story. Years after writing Citizens Plus, Harold remained as the president of the Alberta Association of Indians. In 1977, he wrote his next book titled The Rebirth of Canada's Indians. Unlike The Unjust Society, this book was more hopeful and optimistic looking at the future and the near decade of change since the White Paper. This book looked at what came next and the importance of First Nations to be responsible for their own destiny. Many commentators on the book stated that it appeared Harold had mellowed in his writing. And it may have seemed that way, but there was still fire in Harold Cardinal's belly and it would lead to his first setback. The same year The Rebirth of Canada's Indians was released, Harold was appointed as a Regional Director of Indian Affairs in Alberta. He was the first Indigenous person to hold this post, and within seven months, he was removed from that post. 
During his tenure, it was alleged that Harold alienated people within the organization by condemning corruption on reserves and calling some chiefs, quote, village tyrants. His critics stated he had gone too far, too fast, and was bound to wash out. After his dismissal, Harold stepped away from the public eye. He moved to Assumption, Alberta, now called Chetta, located 800 kilometers north of Edmonton. Even though he had stepped back, Harold was still commanding for change. And Harold helped enshrine the rights of Indigenous peoples in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in the early 1980s. He was also elected the Vice Chair of the Prairies and the National Indian Brotherhood in 1983. In 1985, he began to work with the Prairie Treaty Nations Alliance with the goal of asserting treaty positions and ensuring the federal government upheld specific rights guaranteed in those treaties. Harold was asked to negotiate an agreement to renovate Treaty 8, which covers northeast British Columbia, northwest Saskatchewan, and all of northern Alberta. Unfortunately, a promising start led to failure and Harold pulled away from Indigenous politics once again and went on a long period of reflection. During this time, he met with elders to determine his next steps, and that's when he decided to obtain a law degree and study at the University of Saskatchewan and then complete it at Harvard. By this point, the 1990s had dawned and Harold started to work behind the scenes as a manager for First Nation bands in Alberta. He consulted them in land claims and negotiations with the government on a variety of matters. He also contributed to the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, which was established in 1991 following the Kenesataki resistance a year earlier. That event, also called the Oka Crisis, was a 78-day standoff from July 11, 1990 to September 26, 1990 that involved Mohawk protesters who blocked the expansion of a golf course on traditional land. The expansion was done without their consultation and the blockade led to the government calling in the army, eventually bringing an end to the protest. By the mid-1990s, Harold had become an elder statesman of Indigenous politics and a man who had helped inspire major changes in how the federal government worked with First Nations. And Harold was finally about to get the recognition he deserved. In 1999, he was awarded an honorary doctorate from the University of Alberta for his unique achievements in leadership, public policy, and law. In 2000, he was once again putting pen to paper and wrote, Treaty Elders of Saskatchewan, our dream is that our people will one day be clearly recognized as nations. He co-wrote the book with Walter Hildebrandt, a historian and poet from Brooks, Alberta. The book brought together the voices of many Saskatchewan elders to provide an Indigenous perspective on treaties and treaty rights. During the 2000 federal election, Harold realized a dream he had since his youth. He ran for the Liberal Party in the Alberta riding of Athabasca, where he finished second with 28% of the vote behind Dave Chatters of the Canadian Alliance. And one year later in 2001, Harold received a National Aboriginal Achievement Award. This award, now called the Inspire Award, was presented for Harold's lifetime of work advocating for Indigenous peoples. Other recipients include artists Kenowak Ashavak, musicians Buffy St. Marie and Robbie Robertson, and Senator Murray Sinclair. On June 2, 2005, Harold was awarded a Doctor of Law degree from the University of British Columbia. A day later, on June 3rd, Harold Cardinal died of cancer. He died a day before a planned banquet in his honour was to take place in Edmonton, which wasn't cancelled at his request. At his funeral, over 800 people attended to pay their respects as his coffin was carried in a wagon led by a team of horses. 
In attendance was Assembly of First Nations Chief Phil LaFontaine. LaFontaine was leader of the organization, which was once called the National Indian Brotherhood, the same one Harold helped create three decades earlier. Phil LaFontaine said, I looked upon him with envy because he was so sure of himself. He became our spokesperson. He made us proud. That is the story of Harold Cardinal, but before we're done, there's one more story to tell, and it involves royalty. On July 5, 1973, Harold Cardinal stood at the entrance to a teepee in Calgary. He held the entrance flap open as Queen Elizabeth II emerged. She was there to celebrate the centennial of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and Harold was given the opportunity to privately speak with the Queen, who was on her final stop of a two-week tour of Canada. He called her the Sovereign Queen, who is our treaty partner, and asked that she uphold the terms of the treaties. In response, she said, You may be assured that my Government of Canada recognizes the importance of full compliance with the spirit and themes of the treaties. Whether or not that was the case, as we look back over the past 50 years since that meeting, remains up for debate. What is not up for debate is that Harold Cardinal changed Canadian history and he can count himself among the most influential Indigenous leaders of the 20th century. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at Harold Cardinal. Next week, we're looking at the Dion Quintuplets. Information from Canadian Encyclopedia, Calgary Herald, Inspire, Ivy Panda, New Federation, UBC, Ottawa Citizen, Edmonton Journal, Vancouver Sun, and the Calgary Albertan. This show is researched, produced, and written by me, Craig Baird, with the help of Dila Velasquez. Audio production and design by Rosalind Kufour. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many for you to sink your teeth into. If you enjoy this podcast, then please check out my other podcasts, From John to Justin, Canada, A Yearly Journey, Pucks and Cups, and Canada's Great War. We love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those in my show notes. Until next time, I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X.